You are about to listen to Defending Black Girlhood Podcast, and I'm your host, Lalita G. I'm a black mother. Look, I don't care what Mookie May May and Lakeisha oh, Mama does. I'm not Mookie May May and Lakeisha's uh, Mama. Tripping. A preacher. Give me the key of D. And Mary had a little baby, and his name was Jesus. A life coach. Look, girl, if Chump don't want no help, Chump don't get no help. Oh, and a singer. And I, and I, and I, no, I ain't a singer. Most of all, I'm an advocate for black girls everywhere they are. And I'm telling you right now, I am unapologetic as hell about my fierce advocacy for black girls to be safe in their homes, schools, and communities. Join us for courageous conversations about topics that most impact our girls and be inspired to do your part in defending black girls in your part of the world. Any scene depicted in this episode is a fictionalized dramatization based on true accounts and public records. We aim to give voice to the story and tragedy of Erica Hill's life. Some information may contain graphic, violent, or explicit language. Listener's discretion is advised. Jane Doe was a young adult black woman found abandoned, naked, and burned with no signs of life in a garage in Gary, Indiana. During my examination of her remains, I observed widespread thermal injuries with second and third degree burns of the left orbit and central and left side of the face and neck, second and third degree burns of the left breast and anterior axilla second and third degree burns of the left subcostal region and left to central abdomen, extending along the left flank to the lumbar spine and the entire region. The right and left lower extremity and bilateral forearms and hands were severely burned with reduction to the bone of the fingers. I have determined that the thermal injuries were post-mortem. The bloody cloth stuffed in Jane Doe's mouth was saturated with saliva and a volatile aromatic liquid. The cloth had completely obstructed her oral cavity. I observed a laceration of the lips, loss of teeth, blunt force injuries to the head, including a right frontal contusion of the scalp, cerebral contusions to the right frontal pole, supraorbital fossa and temporal pole, as well as fractures and fragmentation of the right maxillary bone, there is evidence of sharp force injuries to the head, including an incised wound, one inch in length on the central and left forehead, stabbing or chopping wounds in the right maxillary region, stab wounds and an incised wound of the occipital scalp. In addition, there was a stab wound on the left shoulder, somewhat cylindrical in shape, that was superimposed on a healing scab of a similar shape. Jane Doe's body was covered with more than 170 injuries and scars that were discovered to be at various stages of healing. Jane Doe's cause of death was anoxic hypoxia caused by asphyxiation and suffocation due to the obstruction of Jane Doe's mouth with a cloth. I've also determined that contributing factors to her death included sharp and blunt force injuries to her head, with maxillary fractures. After thorough examination of the body, I've determined the manner of death of Jane Doe, a homicide. Respectfully, Dr. John E. Cavanaugh.
so this is probably going to be one of the most difficult episodes that I've done. And it has been a long time coming in the telling of Erica Hill's story. And as we near the end, some of the things that I'm going to say in this episode need to be said, need to be shared, I feel, in order to fully understand Erica's story. So bear with me. In the fall of 2004, there was a report made to Dane County Human Services that there was a suspicion of child abuse. This report, as you all know, was made by Wright Middle School. And and Sarah Knudsen was the teacher that um, was talking to Erica on this day of September of 2004 to get some information because the school for some time, and when I say some time, at this point, Erica's in eighth grade and there was suspicion in sixth and seventh grade and perhaps even suspicion before Erica even started attending Wright Middle School by her elementary school, Lincoln. The report was made of the suspected physical abuse and this was the second report in 2004 that was made to Dane County Human Services. A social worker was assigned to the case in the summer of 2004. I'll talk about that a little bit later. And now we're in September of 2004. So in what less than like four months is a second report of concern about physical abuse to Erica made to Dane County Human Services. This is what the social worker had to say. No contacts possible with family, and it appears they left Madison very soon after the mom learned school staff asked Erica questions about the scratch and scars. Although several things seem suspicious, this case was one in which I could not conclude whether any maltreatment was actually involved. Other explanations were possible. I am closing the case after learning each child has been officially withdrawn from Madison School, and the schools here have not received word that the children have yet been enrolled anywhere. Tom Sundahl, social worker. So what reportedly happened to Erica? The information that I'm about to share with you is very difficult, but it's necessary to share. And the information was gathered from interviews, from public records, And this is what, according to documented reports of what happened to Erica. One of the things is that, I think a lot of people didn't get this, didn't catch this, is that Erica was actually Marie's Hill biological cousin. She was adopted by Marie's mother as a baby. My understanding from different reports was that Erica's mother was addicted to drugs that Marie's mother was the auntie to Erica's mother and that she went to the hospital when Erica was a baby, reportedly, and adopted Erica. This was back in like um, 1991 when Erica was born. She adopted Erica, which then made her Marie's sister, made her Marie's little sister. And then in 2001, Marie's mom dies. And so when Marie's mother dies, 
Erica is brought to Wisconsin by Marie and subsequently adopted by Marie, which then made Erica Marie's daughter. So Erica was Marie's biological cousin. She was her adoptive big sister and then later became her adoptive mother. It has been reported by several people that Erica's adoptive mother took absolutely wonderful care of Erica, that she treated her very well. Erica was in good conditions. Um, when she came to Madison after her death in 2001, but there was some controversy about this. There were family members from Joliet who said that Erica had been taken without permission. And one of the reports that I read said that Erica was actually picked up at school and was taken by Marie from school and brought to Wisconsin. And the family members said that they had been looking for Erica, that Marie did not have permission, but there was some information that was shown, some kind of um, sign over that gave her permission, that one family member gave her permission, but I guess the other family members did not know that, did not agree with it. And so there was an investigation and it started in Illinois. A representative came to Madison and questioned Marie and separately asked Erica if she wanted to remain in Marie's custody. And reportedly, Erica said yes, that she was not there against her will. But now again, at this point, you're talking about someone that's like, what, eight, nine years old. I don't know if abuse had started at this point in time. She's a kid. Maybe she was excited to be there with other kids. And maybe it started off real good. And so reportedly, Erica said that she wanted to stay there. And by those who knew Erica when she first came to Madison, and I got this from several interviews, reports, um, friends, family friends, family members that said that when Erica first came to Madison, she was bright, she was joyful, she excelled in school, you know, she had a light in her eyes. And that over time, they saw the light just go out in her eyes. They saw her spirit just drain out. They saw her clothing and things change. She just began to change. And important to also note is that several accounted said that there were no notable scars on Erica's face, on her arms, or on any other visible parts of her body. And she dressed normally. There were no turtlenecks in the summer, no long sleeve, no long pants in the summer. She dressed normally. She had beautiful skin and it was not scarred. At some point in time, the physical abuse reportedly started by Marie to Erica. And it was reported that Erica was abused more than the other children and that oftentimes Erica would be abused for no apparent reason. You know, some of the reports that I read, this gave numerous of reasons why it was reported that the kids would get beaten for one reason or another, um, which also didn't warrant that, but that sometimes for no apparent reason, Erica would be beaten. Many school, church, and community people either knew or suspected that Erica was being physically abused by Marie. Some said that they confronted Marie. Some said that they called human services. Some said that they were concerned from afar. 
that they suspected, but because Erica had never said it, that they couldn't respond or do anything by it. It was also reported that Erica was required by Marie to wear turtleneck shirts all year long, hot or cold, to hide the growing numbers of scars that were accumulating on her young body due to the physical abuse. There was a abuse report made again, as I was saying, in the summer of 2004, like July, that there was an injury to Erica's hand that caused Marie to take her to receive medical treatment. And apparently what happened was, according to the reports, the doctors, the nurses, whomever, felt like Marie was being appropriate, very cooperative, until they asked Erica to change into a gown. And y'all know that. You can go in for your ears, and they're going to make you get undressed and put on a gown. And so even though it was Erica's hands, they asked that she gets undressed and so they could examine her. And they said that Marie said she left the keys in the car or had to go take care of the other kids. And basically when they came back to the room, Marie was gone. Now, because apparently um, at the time Marie was getting the medical treatment that was needed, she must've given them her name, her you know information because there was a suspicion by the staff that Marie was abusing Erica. So Dane County was was called, a social worker was assigned, and according to the social worker, she tried on numerous of occasions to get in touch with Marie at her job. She called, she stopped by, and because she could never get a cooperative response from Marie. Even though now medical professionals are saying, we are really concerned about this child. This is what happened. They closed the case because she can't get a hold of her. Now, that's not to say that Marie was invisible. It's to say that the tactics that she, this social worker used weren't yielding a result. So instead of upping the ante, because I think, okay, so you couldn't call her. Like, if you are abusing a child or being suspected of abusing, like, how cooperative are you necessarily going to be motivated to be? So that it, the onus is on social services to do all that they can to navigate this investigation to find out if this child is being abused. And so all possibilities were not explored because when y'all want to find somebody, you'll find somebody. So if you really, really, really wanted to, you could have. Even if that meant getting the police involved to help you to locate this woman who was living and working in the community at the time. She was going to church at the time. She had associates at the time. I'm just saying she wasn't invisible she could have been found. But instead of pushing and pressing and calling the police and raising the alarms on this black girl, they closed the case because she was difficult to be found. In September of that same year, Erica was questioned by school personnel as to why she, she came to school. And we, um, you may recall, if you've listened in, that um, Laurel talked about this 
very specifically this, you know, it's been a number of years. Um, Sarah Knutson talked about this as well, that Erica came to school one day, she had on this shirt that was pulled all the way up on her neck and that wasn't sufficient. That also a tight safety pin was holding the collar in place so that you couldn't see her neck. And this was an opportunity for the school to press in and they questioned Erica about her shirt. Now, I also read that it said that somebody from the school called mom and said, hey, can you, Erica looks uncomfortable. And I think Laurel, um, the counselor talked about this too, that Erica looks really uncomfortable. Can you bring her another shirt up to the school? And that this was the same day where Sarah Knutson kind of pressed in, can I see your neck? What's going on? Now, they said that, and this stood out to me, that not only was there concern about what they thought was going on in her neck region, that she had obvious scars around her lips, mouth, and nose that they could see. Let alone the scars they couldn't see, but they could see these. And so apparently Erica said that I have a rash. This is what, you know, I don't want to show you. I have a rash. And at some point she says, um, and, and they notated that she seemed nervous. She seemed scared that she says, listen, call my sister to the office. She'll tell you that I have a rash. My mom took me to the doctor to get some medicine. That's all it is. It's not abuse. It's not scars. And they shared that, um, Erica told her teacher, Ms. Knudsen, that she was scared and uncomfortable. She told her that she was scared and uncomfortable. The call was made to Human Services because Sarah Knudsen saw some scratches, some deeper scars on Erica's neck, on Erica's neck, on her chest area. Social service was again called for the second time in 2004, now being September, that there was concerned about abuse. The next day, uh, Erica was pulled from school. Now, some reports that she was pulled, that the mom came early maybe that day and got all the kids. But at any rate, she was pulled from the school never to return to school again. This was like the first month of her eighth grade year. Erica was looking forward to high school. According to her friends, she was pulled from school in eighth grade and she never returned to public instruction again. The reports about the abuse of Erica were disturbingly extensive. And for what I'm about to share, I will tell you that there is much more that I'm not sharing. It was reported that Marie would abuse Erica physically, striking her with her hands, punching her, slapping her, striking her with objects such as a bat. Um, one report said that a bat was broken on her, that she would be hit with an extension cord, that an extension cord was broken on her. Sometimes sharp objects were used. Um, sometimes her head would be striked against the wall that strangulation almost to the point of passing out would be used, that Marie would withhold food from Erica at times. And at times she would expose Erica 
to the heat of the sun and the cold of the winter. I know that sounds familiar. It was said that on days that they would just be punched and slapped, that they would regard that as a good day. It was reported that Erica would be beaten naked and that at times she would be forced to get in the shower to wet her body so that when she was beaten with the extension cord, my God, the strikes would hurt more and sting more. Marie described similar treatment from her mother in some reports. And it was, it was said that um, Marie said she was physically abused by her mother and that um, she was beaten, that she was, food was withheld. She was exposed to the elements at times. And there was speculation that maybe Erica was abused so severely because Marie was jealous that her mother treated Erica better than she treated her when she was a girl. Prior to her death, Erica was described as being gray in color. Her hair started falling out, presumably from the starvation, and that she had many, many scars over her neck her abdomen, her legs, her buttocks, and arms. But it was really, really bad on her back where she would often be beaten with naked and wet with the extension cord. Before her death, Erica was described as changing to the point of being retarded. This was described from somebody, this is how they described it, in that she really changed from being normal to being really weird. Part of the description of this was that Erica would be drooling, that the whites of her eyes were yellow. And again, I would suggest that they may have been yellow from jaundice, which jaundice can be a symptom or um, end result of starvation. And that in this part, this, this broke my heart, that she had to wear a diaper because it got to the point where she was no longer able to control her bowels and that it was assumed that she would sometimes pee on the floor or furniture as a way to get at Marie. And of course, you know that this led to more beatings, reportedly. It was reported that Erica would often have an ice pack to her face from the beatings and black eyes from the beatings. The morning of her murder, Erica was with Marie when she dropped off the other children at school. And I, I thought about this when I, when I um, came across this information. And it made me think about almost how cruel, how much, you know, Erica's friend said she looked forward to high school, how much she enjoyed school. You know, her teachers and other school personnel said Erica loved being at school. And it made me think about how torturous that must have been for her for years, seeing the other kids go on to school, go on to high school, do the things that she wished she could do. And she just had to watch, you know, dropping them off at school, what that might have felt like for her. 
those days she had to do that. And and what was her life like day after day, not being in school? What was her life like every day for years from September of 2004, when she was pulled from school until February of 2007 of her death? What was her daily life like? Reportedly, Erica was killed at home in Fitchburg. Her body was mutilated, horribly, horribly mutilated, disrespectfully mutilated, and was disposed of like a piece of trash. At the top of the episode, you heard a dramatization of the report from Dr. Kavanaugh, who did the autopsy when Erica's body was discovered in February of 2007 in an abandoned garage in Gary, Indiana. Now I'm about to have a conversation with Dr. Jasmine Zapata, and she is going to help us to understand what all those words meant, what all those injuries meant. Dr. Zapata is a pediatrician, and she also has a certification in community-based medicine and preventative medicine. And so she's going to walk us through this report. So thank you all for joining us for another episode of Defending Black Girlhood. And I am joined today with Dr. Jasmine Zapata. She is a local pediatrician who also specializes in preventive medicine and public health. And she is going to help walk us through pretty much how Erica died. And so we just have two paragraphs, not the whole report. I have tried to get the whole autopsy, but because I'm not a family member, I was not able to get the whole report. So we're looking at a short summation. And in looking at this, I wanted to talk with not just a medical doctor, but also a pediatrician since Erica was 15 when she was killed to kind of walk us through what Dr. Kavanaugh saw when he began to examine the body of Erica Hill. Dr. Jasmine, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me and for talking about this really important topic. And I would imagine in your field of both pediatric medicine, but also the preventive medicine and public health, that child abuse, physical, sexual, is something that you went to school to try to help prevent as well. Most definitely. Just kind of jumping in, and I have to say that this is a very difficult read to just kind of go through it, but I want the listeners to understand what Erica's experience was her last day. And so can you begin to walk us through some of the particulars that Dr. Kavanaugh talked about? So as you mentioned, reading through this report is very heartbreaking as a mother, as a Black woman, as an advocate in this city and nation, to even have to read through this is just heartbreaking to think what things she experienced over her life and also what things she experienced in those last few moments. In addition to that, the disrespect for life that she experienced even after her death, the disrespect for her body is just chilling and heartbreaking. Yes. But again, thank you for bringing awareness to this. So some of the things that stood out to me in the report was that she had cuts and scars 
of different ages of healing. Mm -hmm. And what that means is that some of those wounds were not just from the very day she died. It said multiple stages of healing, which tells us that she was exposed to multiple traumas over the course of a very long period of time. So repeated trauma, that's what I got from that. And, you know, I think that's really important to note because in Dr. Kavanaugh's report, he specified that he had found more than 170 mm-hmm. injuries, scars. Yes. 170 across her face, her arms, her body. It's maddening. I just, I just, it, it leaves me speechless mm-hmm. to even think about this was a 15-year-old girl mm-hmm. and the type and the extensive nature of abuse. And I don't know, even in your practice, if you can even speak to if you've seen or just even as you were going to school studying preventive medicine and public health, how many scars you may see in a particular child that had been abused. I know there is no perfect answer in that, but does 170 for a 15-year-old sound extremely excessive? It sounds extremely excessive. Now, there's a range of things that we see, and there are definitely horrific cases out there with more. But just in general, that does sound like a pretty high number. And when you think about where these scars and wounds could have come from, there's three things that come to my mind. Number one, people always say it could be accidents. Okay. Having this many, you don't have this many accidental scars. The other thing is, self-inflicted. So that even makes me think, did she have some depression going on or suicidal thoughts or have self-harm behavior? And you always look at the root of what that was from. So that could have been from abuse or neglect or traumas causing her to feel depressed and participate in self-harm behaviors. So what was her mindset? What was her mental health like? That's devastating and heartbreaking as well. And then finally, the other thing we think about when we hear about all these wounds of different ages of healing, then the most obvious one is abuse from someone else. Yeah, because they talk about hear that there were scars on her face, her chest, her abdomen. But I think it's also important when we're looking at the three potential causes of these scars, they're also on her back. Right. And we know you can scar your own face, your own chest, your own abdomen, your own arms, but not likely your own back. Exactly. And also not everyone, but also when there are self-harm behaviors, a lot of teenagers try to hide it. So they wouldn't put it somewhere obvious like that. Right. So I would say when I read that, it made me definitely say this was longstanding abuse from someone else. Yes. So Dr. Kavanaugh tells us in what we have before us, the cause of death. Can you tell us what he stated as a cause of death and what that actually means? Yes. So at the end of the report, he mentioned that the cause of death was homicide which is basically death caused by, not by natural causes, not by self-inflicted injury, but at the hands of someone else. At the hands of someone else, this young, precious 15-year-old girl's life was cut short, premature death at the hands of someone else. So that was one thing, but homicide. But then he also gives another definition of the cause of that homicide was anoxic hypoxia. Was that the exact? 
word. Okay, anoxic hypoxia. And what that basically means is a lack of oxygen to the brain, a lack of oxygen to the organs and tissues in the body. Anoxic hypoxia means that even though your heart may be pumping blood to the rest of the body, even though there's blood going to your organs and tissues, there's no oxygen inside of that blood that's pumping. And then without oxygen, your tissues and cells die. So that's what he said the cause of death was. And so then some other evidence that he showed. Let me ask you this, though. So he says the uh, anoxic hypoxia caused Mm -hmm. by asphyxiation. Yes. But then he also says and suffocation. What's the difference? It's basically the same thing, but there's other ways that suffocation to me is more like there's something physical blocking okay. your airway. So okay. you, can, you, you didn't just stop breathing for some reason. Right. There was intentionality. There was intentionality behind it. Something actually blocked it. Whereas if you put a plastic bag over your head, for example, mm-hmm. you're not going to have oxygen, but it's not necessarily like a physical obstruction. Okay. So. Uh, yeah. That, that stopped her from breathing. Yes. In her breathing pathway. Right. He also mentions that they found a towel in her mm-hmm. mouth completely obstructing the airway. And so that fits in with his cause of death that she was suffocated and did not have oxygen flowing to her brain and her tissues. Now, I'm going to be graphic with this because okay. I, it's a graphic situation. How far would that towel needed to be inserted into her mouth that would have caused the covering of her air passage from her mouth and nose? It had to be pretty far. At the back of your throat, it connects to the same pathway where you breathe in air through your nose. So kind of like if you try to swallow something right now and you kind of feel your the back of your throat moving, that's how far back it would need to go. You gave an example. Somebody could put a plastic bag Mm -hmm. over their head and stop themselves from breathing. Could someone physically stuff something so far down their throat to cause themselves to stop from breathing? Um, Yeah, it is possible to do it to yourself, but it's not likely. Because even with gag reflexes, like could... Yeah, uh, even with gag reflexes, because it's kind of like when people hang themselves... When you're gasping for air and things, you usually want to just like take off whatever you're using to hang yourself. It's mm-hmm. kind of like a reflex or survival reflex. So, right. it's like, but if you are actively trying to kill yourself, it's theoretical, but it's not at all likely. Not mm-hmm. at all likely because you're right. You have that gag reflex. I want to clarify with asphyxiation versus suffocation. With the examples, asphyxiation would be the example where you put the bag over your head and then you can't get oxygen to your tissues. And then suffocation is when the actual air supply is blocked. I just mixed those two up. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for that clarity because it's it's important for us, I think, to make that distinction. Right. So both of those things happen, but when they say suffocation, that is actually saying not the amount of oxygen that was in the environment. It's like there was an actual physical blockage. Okay, that's very helpful. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Dr. Kavanaugh said that was the cause of death, those two things. Mm-hmm. But then he goes on to say that there was a contributing factors to her death that include sharp and blunt force injuries to her head with malixery 
practice now. I'm not going to get an A plus on <laughs> maxillary, maxillary. I maxillary love practice. Thank you. So what does that mean to have a contributing factor to death? That means that there was a primary cause of death, but then there was something else that helped speed it up or that played a role as well. It might not have been the main thing that played a role, but it definitely played some type of role as well. So when you combine those two things, it ultimately led to the death. And how long does it take the average person to be suffocated? So everybody's a little bit different, but what's really interesting is that sometimes it can take minutes to even hours for all the cells in your body to die when they don't have oxygen anymore. Okay. And so just like, have you ever heard of the deep sea divers who can go down for like 10 minutes or some incredibly long time to train their body to be able to operate on low oxygen levels? Right. So it's not like something that happens right away. And so I don't know exactly this case or tell exactly what happened, but if she was gagged and suffocated, even though she was starting to kind of lose consciousness, it wasn't a death at that second. It almost seems like the person suffocated her. And as she was dying, then that contributing factor of all those blunt injuries, this person was hitting her shop. They said in the report, it said there were like chunks of her skin missing at almost like an axe went to her. So as her tissue slowly dying, she was slowly dying from being suffocated. They were giving her blunt force injuries. And that's just devastating. From one of the reports that was put forward from the defense attorney, they suggested that Erica died from a fall. Mm -hmm. she had, the mom said she had fallen earlier that week. And when she came home, she was just dead. Could the injuries that Dr. Kavanaugh describes, could they have been from a single fall? From what I read, absolutely not. Because one does not suffocate or fixate from a fall, correct? Correct. And so the other question I had is, mom says she came home, she found Erica dead, she panicked, she didn't know what to do. So again, looking at the injuries that Dr. Kavanaugh described, you come home, you see a child, your child, with these injuries. Would you not think if you're not the one who did it, that someone had broken into your home and attacked this child? Everything that I'm saying here is from my personal experience, as I mentioned, like as a mother myself, as a auntie and things like that. And so if it were me, I would agree with you. Because even if you say this was accidental, I had nothing to do with it, but you come home and all of these injuries have been done, including cloth still stuffed down her throat. Right. Do you not think there is a maniac out there who's killing teenagers and somehow they got in my house. I definitely would, especially with how graphic it talks about. It seemed like it was like an ax to her, broken bones, and just so many injuries that would make me feel the same thing too. And this was before the burns as well, correct? That's correct. Okay. So the injuries that she sustained from the asphyxiation, from the suffocation, and then from the blunt force trauma, well, not, not even blunt force. It was sharp arching. Yeah. Or both. He said blunt force injuries and a sharp injury. Right. 
How would you describe the nature of this death? Just horrific, horrific, even before and after. And then gruesome and torture. Because going back to that question about how long can your brain go without oxygen, after five to 10 minutes of not breathing, you're likely to develop serious, irreversible brain damage. But that's after five to 10 minutes. So in the first minute, your brain cells just start to die. At three minutes, then you start to have more serious brain injury, but you're still alive. After 10 minutes, many brain cells have died and you're unlikely to recover. And then after 15 minutes, recovery is virtually impossible. It just breaks my heart to even think about what she experienced as she was being suffocated, as she was losing consciousness, but still had some brain cells still working. And I'm just thinking about the different parts of your brain. When you start to think about the anatomy of the brain and the different functions of the brain, you have certain parts of the brain that help you hear your occipital lobe that helps with vision. You have amygdala, that part of your brain, that is the part that can sense fear, all kind of emotions. So as her brain cells were dying off, they were still processing and firing. So just imagine the different things she was hearing, experiencing, even seeing, or the emotions before ultimately she died. So it's heartbreaking. Oh my God. I want to get to it. It's devastating. It really is. I want to get to some of the things that happen after the fact. Mm -hmm. I want to ask you another question before we get there. There was another report that I read that stated that Erica, quote unquote, was acting slow, or I think the word retarded was used. And that she wore a diaper to prevent her from wetting herself. Now, Erica was previous to this described as a very gregarious child. She was smart. She was inquisitive, high developmental functions, all of that. Is there any inference that we can make or speculations about what may have caused those developmental changes where she's acting slow where she's can't control her bowels to the point where she's now wearing a diaper. Yes. So two things come to mind. One thing that can cause that, especially in children of that age, where you would expect that they can control their bowels and bladder. Well, three things. So number one, it could be some type of health condition, some type of rare neurologic health condition that can cause that. The other thing is that sexual abuse Mm-hmm. sexual abuse can cause some of those findings. And the third thing is head trauma. So when you have a brain or neurologic injury, that is known that it can cause bladder and bowel changes where you're unable to control the muscles that control those things. Those things are not working properly. So in the context of The fact that she has all these injuries in different places of different ages of healing and she has been through trauma. If she had some significant brain injury, some abusive head trauma over the years, that could lead to concussions, memory issues, concentration issues. And also when you have serious brain injuries, you can have bladder and bowel issues. So I'm not exactly sure. There's no way 
without going back in time and knowing exactly what happened. But that's something that's a possibility. And I appreciate that speculation because Erica was pulled from school the fall of 2004 and was removed from school, removed from Madison. A couple years later, the family comes back to Madison area. All of the other children in the family were re-enrolled in school. Her former teacher found that Erica was listed as being homeschooled. And I've wondered what happened between 2004 and February of 2007 when Erica was killed that kept her out of the public eye. And before I had read this in this report, I speculated that two things. One, that her mother was like, okay, you're going to go run your mouth up there with those white people. You're not going back to school. The second thing was that there was some scars, something that happened that Erica could no longer go to school because Erica for years had worn turtlenecks, long sleeves, and pants. Hot, cold, it didn't matter what. All seasons, she wore these. And so the scars on her neck and her arms and her torso were likely the reason why she was forced to dress like this to cover up her scars. And when it was finally discovered that they saw some scars, Mm -hmm. it was her pulling down her turtleneck. So I'm assuming from there that Erica did not have significant scars on her face Mm -hmm. in 2004. Now, when the body was found in 2007, it describes particularly her having scars on her face. And I'm thinking from even what one of the daughters said was that when they would be abused by the mom and there was significant bruising or scarring, they were pulled from school for a time until those scars and bruises healed. And I speculated that in Erica's case, that she may have had scars that could not be explained away. That couldn't be she fell. That couldn't be the dog did it. That there was something that after that point, the punishment, the physical punishment that she sustained after it was reported that she was being abused, that there was something that happened that Erica needed to be kept out of the public eye. And then when I read about her wedding herself, that the very first thing I thought was she had sustained brain injury. All those are plausible in my personal opinion. Personal and I'm going to go ahead and say you're medical. Yeah, from all my background, because as you know, I'm not representing any type of hospital or if I'm not in any way involved officially as like a medical examiner on the case or legally or anything like that. From my identity as all the medical training I've been in, my common sense also having a lot of experience with families and community relations. When you put all of that together, I would agree with the speculations that you have. So as if what we've already discussed and talked about wasn't enough, Dr. Kavanaugh goes on to describe the fact that he observed widespread thermal injuries with second and third degree burns on the left orbit and central and left side of the face and neck second and third degree burns on the left breast and anterior axilla, second and third degrees burns of the left subcostal region and left to central abdomen extending along the left flank to the lumbar spine and in the entire region in her right and left extremities and bilateral forearms and hands with the reduction to the bone of the fingers. 
Can you break that down to us in regular terms? Basically, she experienced some severe burns all over her body, even down to the level of her bones in her fingers. So just some severe burns. And I do believe it said somewhere in that report, it said those appeared to be post-mortem. Yes. And she also had like um, basically on that cloth in her mouth, they found traces of alcohol. So what that tells me is that after she died, someone tried to burn her body. And they're supposing that she got burned after she died, post-mortem after she died. But at this point, who knows? Who knows? Was she, as I mentioned, about how long it takes your brain to shut down after it lacks oxygen? Mm-hmm. Was she in her final moments of life when that person started to burn her? I don't know, which makes it even more devastating. But basically what I read from that is after the person did all those things to her, then they tried to burn her body and litter with alcohol, drenched her body with alcohol, lit it on fire, and her body suffered some extreme burns. He goes on to say that there was evidence of sharp force injuries to the head, including an incised wound one inch to the length of the central and left forehead, stabbing or chopping wounds in the right maxillary region, stab wounds and lacerations to the lips, and incised wound of the occipital scalp. Occipital scalp, did you say? Yes. What does that mean? It means that there were... So blunt force injury means like you have a bat and you hit somebody in the head with it but then those sharper injuries is almost like a knife or something that's like actually piercing your skin and it seems like it's saying that she experienced both of those and those more medical terms there are just explaining of actually where those things were happening so like when you talk about orbital that's around the eye maxillaries like kind of by your jaw occipitals more like in the back of the head So all these piercing traumas to the head and the face. My God. So we do know from the mother's testimony that she does admit to, she didn't say this, but I'm going to say this, desecrating the body, burning it. And after death, she said, knocking out her teeth in the hopes of sealing her identity. And I think that's why it's important when Dr. Kavanaugh says that her fingers were reduced to the bone and getting rid of the teeth so that the body could not be identified. So sad. It's so sad. And, and, you know, I think there's levels and layers of the sadness. And one of the things is that there've been people who've been so committed to believing who Marie presented herself to be, that even upon Erica being dead, they would say things like, well, there's gotta be more to the story. And so even if we say, if we didn't know how she died, say we don't know how she died, say we didn't have that paragraph for Dr. Kavanaugh describing the cause of her death. When one looks at what happened to her after death that the mother did admit to doing, lighting her on fire, knocking out her teeth, and then putting her in a garbage bag, leaving her, well, leaving her in the bathroom for a period of time on the floor, and they had to step over her body in order to go to the bathroom, moving the body to the garage in a garbage bag, and it stayed there until the smell of her decaying body 
she felt was becoming suspicious, moved the body, dumped it in Chicago, went back and got the body and moved it to another place in Gary, Indiana. That even if we didn't know how she died, what does what her mother admitted to doing to her body post-mortem indicate in the way the body was treated? It makes me just wonder. I want to know mom's whole life story. I want to know what social factors were going on. I want to know what mom's mental health status and state was. Those are kind of some of the questions that are running through my mind. And I mean, what I'm getting at too is her body was treated in death mm-hmm. violently. Mm-hmm. And that even if we didn't know how she died, to me, the way her body was treated in death, even the fact that she was found pretty much naked, which for a 15-year-old girl would be horrifying, and the injuries post-mortem to the body, the being set on fire, the knife off of the teeth, burning the fingers down to the bone, this to me underscores the fact that if you treat somebody's body like this violently, when they're dead, you probably didn't have a lot of respect for their body when they were alive. I definitely can see that. But I also don't know either how I would feel in that position at all. I don't know how I would feel in that position. When you're panicked, when you're fearful, trying to cover things up for whatever reason, I just don't know how I would feel, how I would act under stress and panic. People do irrational things. so. It's just hard to really understand the mind of that mom. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Because you don't want to ever, you know, even just being a mother myself, like I never could even imagine treating a child like that. And then after doing that, but that mom, when she was pregnant with that baby and was raising her, she probably never had a biological child. Oh, it's not. Okay. 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 She's a biological relative, but not a biological. Child. Not a biological child. Okay. But even when you're growing up, you never would think you're going to be stooping to those levels or doing something to this degree at all. It's just like, I wonder what, not saying that I feel sorry for her, but just like, what traumas did she face in her life? I wonder about her childhood. I wonder about how she was treated and respected. I wonder about her, her whole life really and her mental state of mind. I watch a lot of crime shows. Yeah. And one of the things that I've seen over and over again is that many times detectives look at the way in which someone was killed. Yeah. Or to determine the mindset of the person who killed them. Right. And one of the things that they say time and time again is that killers that redress the victim, who put them in like a sleep position, who cover them up, it is a showing of remorse. They did the deed, but they're remorseful. In the death, they treat the body with care, with quote unquote, loving care, concern by covering up in that way. Conversely, when you see a violent death, yes, there was a level of anger. Like most people who are stabbed, for instance, are not stabbed by a stranger. Right. Because stab someone, you have to be close up on them. And it's a process to kill someone by stabbing. And that it usually shows this person knew the, the victim. They had some kind of rage on them, particularly if you see not one stab wound, but if you see 30, 70 stab wounds, 
Right. There's this thought that this person knew them and they were in a rage when they killed yeah. them. Mm-hmm. And so what I'm getting at, asking how she died and then the, subsequently the treatment of her body, it seems to me that it shows a level of rage that continued even after she was dead. Yeah, I definitely would agree. And then I asked from a preventive medicine and public health standpoint, that rage was there, that disregard for life was there, but why? Mm -hmm. Why? What's the root of that in the person who did this? How could that have been prevented? How could that have been recognized? I mean, we have to ask that question. Yeah, yeah. When you talk about prevention, right. How? Any hope. Right. What what is the root of that rage and disregard? Like what led up to that? How could that have been prevented? Even if I think about like, oh, what if the social workers would have caught this or removed the child from the home or that's ways we could have prevented it. But how could we heal the mind of the person who did this? What was going on? What things led up to that? Mm-hmm. In like a, as a preventive medicine doctor, the way we think is like being a time traveler Back in time, even gener- three generations back, what was going on three generations back? Wow, that could be upstream factor to this that happens. I want to talk to you at another time a little bit more about that because I think that's a fascinating conversation that helps us to understand not only going three generations back, what could have happened to prevent it, but as we are mothering children right now, understanding that three generations from us is having an impact on our children's children's children. The last question that I have for you right now is when looking at being a pediatric doctor, Mm -hmm. and there was a time when Erica earlier in 2004 had gone to the doctor and she had had a severe injury to her hand, which her sister later says her mother did it with a hammer or something like that. When they had asked Erica to undress, you know, as you do when you're going to do an exam, that when they came back basically to the room, the family had left. How do we help pediatric doctors catch signs of abuse early so they can be part of the further prevention of abuse? Any thoughts on that? Yes. So three thoughts that I have. Number one, it's really important that we are able to increase and enhance trust between especially black families and the healthcare system mm-hmm. because there has been trust that's been broken and understandably so yes. at the hands of our own nation at our own public health departments doing unethical things, experiments on slaves without anesthesia, horrible things that have happened. So there is a level of distrust with the healthcare system, not for everyone. I don't speak for every single black person, but just in general, there's some distrust or some caution with the healthcare system. So that's one thing where we need to increase trust so that if there was a mother that says, man, I am dealing with depression and stress and anxiety, and I took it out on my kids a little too much, they're not even going to be able to have that conversation with their healthcare provider because they don't trust them to even bring that up. A lot of times you just feel like you're going to be judged. So number one, we need to find a way to have more authentic conversations and trust with our healthcare systems. There was some surveys and community interviews in the past where some Black families were saying that even as it relates to 
being honest with their doctors about things like sleep environment, spanking and things like that. Basically, they weren't being honest with the pediatricians because they just knew that they were going to be judged. And so they would rather just kind of lie or not bring it up at all because it seemed like there was not a conversation to be had. Yes. I feel like we really need to do a better job at meeting people where they're at and having authentic, real, raw conversations. An example is when we think about like, what's the best way to prevent teenage pregnancy? We know that abstinence only education is not effective where it's like, just don't even do it, period. We're not even going to talk about how to handle it. If you do just abstinence only, abstinence only. I don't disagree with you on that. Okay. We have another conversation on that. Okay. Just from my, okay. my experience of working with girls over the years. But right. But we'll then, go back to that one. Right. But then we talk about comprehensive sex education where it's like, okay, well, the best way to avoid STDs and pregnancy, number one, is abstinence. But if you're going to do it, let's talk about that. Let's be real and raw and authentic. So in that same way, in that example, I feel like our culture of medicine, when it comes to safe sleep, when it comes to spanking your children, any of that, it's a very, very abstinent only which I agree, that's the safest thing to do. But that has caused such a big divide where if parents do decide, oh, I smack my kid on the bottom when they don't listen or other things, it might be even more of a degree than that. Or I do sleep in bed with my child at night. They don't even feel comfortable and safe bringing up that conversation, period, because of such a strong abstinence only. I feel like we need to have more real, authentic conversations where people can trust being real and honest. So that's one thing. And then the other thing is, and I get a lot of slack even <laughs> when I say that, but that's just being real. We we can't help people if they lie about what's going on. We can't help or talk about it in a real and authentic way. Well, and then, that's cool stuff. Right. And then the other thing is we know that nationally there's disparities in minority children being taken away from the home in our current child welfare system. So that's yeah. another thing we need to fix where if that family didn't want their kid to be taken away, I mean, honestly, in some cases, there are some cases where children really do need to be taken away so that they don't die. But then yeah. in other situations, it's not the same treatment between minority families and then some white families. So there is a fear to even bring any of this up because of the disparities we already see in the child welfare system. So that causes a lot of families to flee. And then finally, the third thing is, yes, we need to make sure that our pediatricians and healthcare providers are really taking seriously warning signs, going that extra mile, not just classifying certain patients as difficult or complex and not going that extra mile to advocate and speak out for them. So it's very multi-layered, all of those things. It's not just as easy as teaching pediatricians of the signs to look out for. That is important, but also all of those other things that I mentioned, true and authentic relationships, fixing our child welfare system in the first place. There's a lot of pediatricians that don't have faith in the child welfare system because even things that they have reported over and over and over don't get taken seriously. And then the kid ends up getting hurt or dying. So there's a lot of trust that needs to be rebuilt and a lot of things that need to change too. These are three very, very powerful points. And I thank you for sharing that. Dr. Jasmine, I thank you for your time and your insight in helping us to walk through the causes of death of Erica Hill. And I'm looking forward to having some further conversations with you. Yes. About 
violence prevention that we can really see and have happen in our communities. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you for just advocating for Black women and girls and focusing on healing. And you know, I love you so much and thank you for everything you you do. I love you and appreciate you so much. Talk to you soon. All right. Bye. In the fall of 2007, a report came in that indicated that Marie Hill had killed her daughter, Erica Hill, in the winter of 2007, in February. An investigation ensued, and there were seven counts of charges. Count one, intentional child abuse, bodily harm. The above-named defendant, Marie Hill, did intentionally cause bodily harm to a child This is a class D felony and upon conviction may be fined not more than $10,000 or imprisoned, not more than 10 years or both. Count two, intentional child abuse, bodily harm. Again, the fine might be up to $10,000, imprisoned up to 10 years or both. This is a class D felony. Count three, intentional child abuse, bodily harm. Again, this is a class D felony. And the fine could be no more than $10,000, no more than 10 years imprisonment or both. Count four, physical abuse of a child. The above named defendant, Taylor Marie Hill, on or about February, July 16th, 2004 in Dane County, Wisconsin, did intentionally cause great bodily harm to a child, Erica A. Hill, date of birth, April 26, 1991. This is a class E felony and upon conviction may be fined no more than $50,000 or in prison, not more than 15 years or both. Now, this is the report of the hand injury that happened in the summer of 2004 that she's being charged for. Now, what would have happened had the police been involved and back in 2004, Marie Hill would have been charged for this, might Erica be alive today? instead of the case being closed, because Marie was hard to get a hold of. Count five, intentional child abuse, bodily harm, the above named defendant on or about Wednesday, September 22nd, 2004 in Dane County, Wisconsin, did intentionally cause great bodily harm to a child, Erica A. Hill, a class H felony upon which conviction may be more than 10,000, no more than $10,000 or imprisonment, not more Within six years or both. Count six, intentional child abuse, bodily harm, a class H felony upon conviction may not be fined more than $10,000 or imprisoned more than six years or both. And count seven, first degree reckless homicide. The above named defendant, Taylor Marie Hill, on or about February 2007 in Dane County, Wisconsin, did recklessly cause the death of Erica A. Hill under circumstances which show utter disregard for human life. A class B felony and upon conviction may be sentenced to a term of imprisonment not exceeding 60 years. According to my calculation, Marie Hill, if convicted, faced a total of $100,000 in fines and 113 years of imprisonment. What was Marie Hill ultimately convicted of? On 
July 20th, 2016, Taylor Marie Hill pled guilty to three child abuse charges. This was in response to a plea deal. She was convicted of child neglect causing death, failure to prevent mental harm to a child, and child abuse in the death of 15-year-old Erica Antoinette Hill. So she made a plea deal and pled to a lesser count. So she, again, had seven counts against her. She pled to three of those counts, but was convicted not of homicide, but of actions or non-actions, basically child neglect that was that led to the cause of Erica's death. Her sentence. During her sentencing, Taylor Marie Hill apologized to the community, her children, and they said even the child that she murdered. And this was as it was reported. And that there were still questioning in the court And I just even have the stomach at this time to go into some of the things that were brought up by Marie Hill's defense attorney. And I understand that defense attorney has one job and that's to get their client off. I understand that. Um, To get them off, get them a lesser charge. I understand that. But there were things that I read in the court reports that sounded as if Erica was somehow responsible for her own death. And there was a talk about Erica being, and I talked about this all throughout this season, Erica refusing to go to school, although we had countless reports to the opposite, that Erica loved school, she enjoyed school, she was looking forward to school, that it was a place, safe place for her, um, that Erica was, was a bad girl, and she was running away, and she was having boys to the house, and she was disobedient and she defied Marie and said, I'm not going to school. So the other kids got to return to school when they came back to the Madison area, but she didn't. No one from any reports that I read, no one had anything wonderful to say about Erica. Um, There were countless of character witnesses from the community, from Marie's church, who came forward and and spoke on her behalf and how wonderful she was. And again, I understand that this was for Marie, but man, as I was reading through those, I just wanted to hear one person say, Erica was a sweet child. Erica was smart. Erica was wonderful. The only thing in the court report that I read about Erica was how bad she was. And that was it her fault that she died at 15. There Even though Marie had a plea deal, there were those who continued to call Erica's death a murder, a homicide, calling attention to her scars that were found in various stages of healing, that it was a sign of ritualistic, overtime abuse at the hand of Marie Hill. Marie Hill was quoted as saying that she thinks about Erica every day and what she would be doing today if she were alive. So do I. Taylor Marie Hill was sentenced to 15 years in prison for the child neglect 
the maximum sentence. And because of the seriousness of the, fa- of the facts of this case, the judge imposed an additional four years in prison for mental harm and an additional year for child abuse for a total of 20 years out of the 113 years if she had been convicted for all seven counts and had received the maximum sentences and that upon release, she will spend 15 more years on extended supervision. And so I end this episode, this this saga, this heartbreaking story with the same question that I started it with. Who killed Erica Antoinette Hill? As my grandmother would say, mm-mm-mm, that was a good conversation. And listen, we're not playing. We mean this thing. We mean to defend black girlhood by taking on the tough conversations that need to be had in order to do so. And we would love for you to get more connected with our work and our mission by visiting Lalata.org to explore the dynamic work we're doing to defend black girls everywhere they are. And while you're there, we invite you to join our mailing list so you will not miss one single fearless conversation. <laughs>